0: Why not become a My Perfect Console Patreon supporter? For just $5 a month, you will get your episodes early and ad-free. You'll get access to the members-only My Perfect Console community lounge. You'll receive guest announcements exclusively before the general public. You can pitch questions to future guests, download bonus episodes in which guests answer those questions and vote in the annual My Perfect Console Best Console of the Year knockout competition coming later in 2023. Hop along to www.patreon.com forward slash My Perfect Console and become a supporter. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is the American designer of two of the most highly regarded experimental games yet made. He grew up in Virginia, where his interest in hobbyist robotics led him to study mechanical engineering at Virginia State University. At that time, he started designing mods for Quake, which eventually led to a job at Naughty Dog, where he worked on the first two games in the Uncharted series. In 2009, he left the studio and moved with his wife to Japan. It was while travelling abroad that my guest had the idea for a game involving a passport inspector. The result? Papers, Please! sold millions of copies and won several awards, including the grand prize at the Independent Game Festival. His next title, 2018's The Return of the Obra Dinn cast players as an insurance adjuster for the East India Company, trying to piece together the events that led to the destruction of one of its merchant ships and the crew's deaths. In a poll of industry experts for GQ magazine, the game was recently named one of the greatest yet made. Welcome,
2: Lucas Pope. Hello, thank you. I didn't know about that last thing. With oh, Q-Q. okay, <laughs> that's uh, that's cool.
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it instigated a lot of debate online, as you can imagine.
2: I'm sure. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, ha- how are you? Because you're you're in Japan at the moment. It's the evening. I'm in Japan. Yeah, it's a little a uh,
2: little late here, but uh, I'm doing fine. Thank yeah, you.
0: wait, you're in Saitama. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it's a uh, the northern prefecture one north of okay. tokyo
0: and is it, is it kind of a quiet
2: place or a, a city city based well it's everything's kind of city here uh but uh it's much quieter than tokyo more my nice. speed much more okay. rural. do
0: you have a little bit of garden or, or
2: not we do actually yeah we got a little bit of a garden here which is a, a luxury
0: so your your like two most famous games i think are, are really about noticing things uh so in in papers please you play as this inspector and you're the players sort of poring over travel documents to try and decide the fate of immigrants, and then in Obradin, we're looking for minute clues to flesh out this story. Is uh, is that in your character? Are you sort of a, a born noticer? Uh, yeah, I
2: guess uh, if that can be part of a character. Uh, yeah, I think the observational part is a big thing for me, and it's also I like that it's not shooting things or mm. killing things. It's more of a passive thing, right? Um, it's just kind of the the sort of thing that I enjoy I guess
0: yeah right right did you were you sort of the kid that kept notes and stuff when you were when you were young and the things you saw and kept Uh, like Seinfeld (laughs)
2: huh yeah I don't know I mean maybe yeah I think that just goes with being the kid who's got wears glasses and is kind of not the most popular kid at school that kind of stuff you just sort of stay quiet and spend your time watching people and things like that yeah
0: I'm also interested because in in Obra you sort of allow your players to draw incorrect conclusions about the things that they notice and they see and um you know for anyone who's not played it you're going around the ship and you get these tiny little vignettes of how each of the crew members perished and you have to sort of figure out which uh which of these um scenes relates to which name on the ship's docket of of crew members um but yeah, you you allow us to, to make errors and sort of gra- uh, base, base uh, you know, false assumptions and inaccuracies and stuff. And I feel like it's also, it's almost like a sort of cautionary tale about the the temptation we all have to fill in blanks rather than live within complete information. Do you, do you think that's fair? Does that kind of thing interest you? Yeah, I, I tried to capture that a little
2: bit, the idea that first off, it's hard to even know exactly what happened. And second off, you really want to know, you want to fill out the list. That's kind of the impulse i was banking on with with the people who would enjoy that game is that they would see this empty list and just just have to fill it out they would kind of be compelled to fill it out and the game at a certain point uh it pulls you through and then it kind of lets you finish the game and you get a bad ending but you kind of you can get off the ship and then you can end the game and i i didn't want a gate there that said you have to figure everything out i wanted that to kind of come from the player i want the player to feel like I I just want to finish this list. I want to fill everything out and then feel satisfied with it. So I was definitely banking on that and hoping that 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 would work. And, you know, for some players it does and for a lot of players it doesn't, Mm. but that's kind of, that was my goal anyways. And the idea that they could get things wrong was something I tried to incorporate into the overall design of just the way that it worked, the way that it confirmed fate's the way that as you get further along in the game and you make more, you you get more correct fates, it, the game becomes easier just naturally because there are less blanks to fill in, basically. So it's kind of a implicit difficulty curve, I guess. Right. Um. So they were allowed to make mistakes that could be corrected later, and then as they learn more about it, their assumptions could be uh, verified or you know nullified or whatever.
0: Hey, yeah, it's like a real risk of the job as a as a journalist sometimes you can go into a story and perhaps have an idea of where where you think it's going and where you want it to end and then you're looking for facts that verify that and that can be a very dangerous path to go down you know have you had any experiences in your own life where you've you've jumped to incorrect conclusions that have uh turned out to later be be false
2: uh just every single day of my <laughs> life probably uh, if I'm thinking about um yeah. I mean, I don't know if I can bust that out on a podcast right now, but that, that's the general thing. I, I try to keep an open mind on most things because I know that um, it's so easy to to make a wrong assumption like that. Mm. And I, I do actually try to incorporate that into my games. I mean, Papers, Please has some of that too, where uh, people who look like bad guys can actually end up helping you later on, or situations that look easy can be end up being difficult when you get into them. Mm. Um, it's kind of part of the whole subversion sort of thing I like to do, where you sort of set up some expectations that the player is looking forward and then you flip them around and surprise them uh, partway through the game. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. The, you've always had, I think, this sort of um, almost a journalistic interest in the, in the theme of your games, and you made this um, small game a while ago that's sort of a, uh, I think, a semi sequel, even though it was made before Papers Please, but Two Papers Please, called the Republic Times, and you're sort of exploring this theme of the tension between truth-telling and self-preservation, right? Because you, in that game, you play as a newspaper editor who's ordered to print falsities in order to save his family. Um, you know, What is it about that particular tension and territory that interests you? Uh, I just, I, yeah, I really like that idea
2: that you're, kind of bureaucratic idea that you're performing a job that has a certain goal that maybe you don't align with, but your personal interests are kind of somewhere else anyways. Mm. So, you know, you're worried about your family and your livelihood, and you're asked to do this job. And you know, it's a job you don't agree with, or it's difficult, or it's you know, a l- printing lies basically. But mm. you know, you still have to do it. That that kind of thing is, you know, I guess we all deal with that sort of thing in micro ways in our lives, um, but. With interactive media like games, you know, I can make you feel like a newspaper editor for a communist country or a repressed Mm -hmm. fascist country or something like that. And a game is kind of the perfect way to experience that without having to actually be that evil person or deal with those kinds of issues directly in your life. So, yeah, I guess I lean towards that because... I feel like games capture that so well, um, that uh, it just seems like a good fit, basically.
0: I mean, with both Papers Please and the Republic Times, I think your purpose is to sort of create some empathy with this character, with people, ordinary people who are asked to do certain jobs and hold that intention with their own um their own lives, right? But Yeah, definitely I suppose also you have bad faith actors uh, in the public eye at the moment who are perhaps spreading falsities for personal gain and things like that we can all think of a few uh very public individuals who, who do that is there a risk that you're sort of trying you're excusing some of those figures as well with the with the message of your the implicit message of your games at least
2: uh yeah sure i mean there's a risk with everything you do i i don't think i'm really emphasizing that particular angle Not. too much uh hopefully but uh yeah sure <laughs> i think um you know when you when you start to talk about how crazy the world is right now it's h- kind of hard to avoid some of that in whatever whatever I do
0: so yeah, yeah indeed and, and and just lastly you know your games are, are always very playful and and have humor and wit in them, but there's also this sort of always a moral philosophical core to them you know is that do you think an essential ingredient for the kind of work you want to put into the world going forward as well
2: yeah I, I didn't know that. Uh, until maybe a couple of years after Papers, Please. But yeah, I think just, and, and it's not something that I, w- I come up with a game idea and it it's all about shooting rabbits or something and I'm like, oh, I, w- I want to put something more important in here. It, I think it's just, it kind of p- sort of flows out of how I think about games and interactivity and what makes an interesting story and the way that I put games together, I kind of have this sort of, I don't know, this sort of process where, I build. I get these pieces together, of mechanics of how the game is going to play, what the player is going to be doing, mm. and then once I have those pieces, I stick them together into a story and into a narrative, and then that feeds back and gives me more ideas about mechanics and you know the whole thing until the game's done. And just the way that that works, the way those things kind of go together, and the stories I think of, I guess they just have kind of a moral core to them, or some something a little bit deeper than than just, you know, running and gunning or saving a princess. And I think some of the games, at least one of the games today um, that I'm listing, we'll talk about this a little bit more, where I kind of maybe talk about my inspirations mm. for that sort of thing.
0: Okay, well, that, I mean, that seems like a good time. So the premise of the podcast, Lucas, is I've asked you to pick the five video games you want to put on your fictional mini console. Can you tell us uh, tell us about this this first game then, which is from 1987? I guess you were, you were pretty young when you were playing this. Uh, what is the game and, and why do you love it?
2: Okay, the game is Wizards and Warriors by Rare for the uh, original uh, NES Nintendo Entertainment System. I, when I was a kid, uh, I played a lot of Atari 2600, which was a lot of fun, but is kind of a different league from Nintendo, the original NES. And I remember uh, one year, our family had gone skiing on some skiing vacation somewhere, and the ski lodge had uh, a Rampage machine. Rampage is an old arcade machine where you this big monster that punches down buildings. And my brother and I played that a lot. It was a quarter of a play, and we played it a lot when we were there. And then uh, somehow the timing worked out that the NES was in the news at the time. Uh, I think it'd been out for a while by then, but we, for us, it kind of came to our attention then. And my brother and I decided, okay, we're going to put our money together. And we didn't have much money back then, but we're going to put our money together and we're going to buy an NES and we're going to buy Rampage for it. And it's going to be awesome. We'll play Rampage at home. Um, but for some reason we put our money together and our dad took us to KB Toys or wherever it was selling the thing and we bought it. And I remember they didn't have Rampage or something like there was some reason why I walked home with Wizards and Warriors instead. And I just bought it because it sounded cool. You know, as a kid <laughs> of the right age, the wizards and warriors, it's like how in one game, it's a, it's an incredible. The irony is there's one wizard and one warrior in that game uh, and you don't see the wizard until the last uh, level. So <laughs> Missold. Yeah, exactly. I want my money back. Anyways, that game was like you know you when you buy a console and you get a pack in or you buy your first game it's it's going to be a misstep you would think you it's always going to be a a kind of swing and a miss on the first one (laughs) Uh, some crap that just looked cool and you bought it and it sucked and then you you know you from then you buy the super mario game or whatever and you really enjoy it Uh, for some reason somehow i got real lucky and i the wizard and warriors is one of my favorite games of all time that's why it's number you know uh, these are chronological but let's just say and so I love that game. I, there's something about the music is excellent. It's it's a very... I didn't know about Rare before. This was only their second Nintendo game, I think. And I wasn't privy to the whole Rare kind of thing in, in the UK or in Europe. But the music is amazing. Uh, the, the gameplay is very simple and easy. Uh, I I always liked easy games. So right there, it was right up my alley that I could play it and get really far. It was a real adventure, too. One of the things about the Atari twenty six hundred was the games were all very shallow. They could be very mm. fun, but they were there was no real adventure there. I was always looking for more adventure, longer exploration and more items and more story and things like that. Um and Wizards and Warriors had all of that and was had all these different locations and had a world map and um and specifically I remember when I was a kid at that age I really wanted I was into magic too. I was into hand magic, like just kind of parlor tricks or whatever. Isn't. But I, I used to want to fly, and this is a normal thing I think for kids that you want to fly. Kid boys want to be able to fly. But I felt like okay, flying is kind of a lot to ask for. If I could dial it back a little bit, maybe just like a, a slight levitation would be doable. Like just a li- if I could just float like a few inches off the ground whenever I wanted, I'd be cool with that. A
0: compromise with the universe.
2: Yeah, I think it's a reasonable compromise, right? Like I, there's people who want to fly over trees and stuff. Like no, I just want like a few inches. Off the ground, kind of. I like concentrate. It could be hard, you know. Could use a lot of calories, whatever. I'm I'm flexible here. Anyways, uh, Wizards and Warriors has a levitation spell, which does exactly what I was like dreaming about. Um, and so it kind of went straight to my heart. The the game, and it it's I don't know. It's when you play it now, it's a pretty simple little platformer game. It has a lot of rough edges too. It's not not an awesome game in retrospect, but for me, it was just perfect. And um, I I learned later. Many years later that uh, if anybody's played that game, you kind of this little knight that goes around and there's stuff flying at you all the time. There's monsters that just like they appear from the side of the screen and they go straight to you and they hit you and they disappear. And so you have this constantly like ticking sort of life bar that's always getting hit by stuff constantly, like making sounds, like whipping in and zooming right to you. And you barely get a chance to hit anything. You have a sword, but it's almost totally ineffective against stuff, um, except the bosses. That's actually a rare trademark, which I didn't oh, really? realize until later. Was just, this is just how that's how Rare made their games back then, with just tons of shit flying at the player all the time, and it was just how they did it. So I thought that was kind of interesting revelation when I went back and reviewed their ZX Spectrum library.
0: Yeah, amazing. And this this levitation move that your uh, your wizard could do. What was the purpose of that? Because it seems like. Quite a modest uh, ability, maybe, in the context of a, of a baffling game.
2: Yeah. Honestly, it was almost useless in the game, too. But there were some walls that you climbed where the platform would recede into the wall. Okay. So it would drop out from under your feet. But if you could levitate right before uh, it dropped, and then you could wait till it comes out again and then drop again. Ah, I see. Uh, okay. So that was one use. And then the other use is a, there's a, uh, a bug in the game, a cheat, where if you go to one level... And you go all the way to the left side of the screen and you levitate over and over again. He moves like one pixel to the left when he drops after levitation. And he'll clip right through the screen and wrap around the other side and you'll be... On a new level, that's much further into the game. Oh, nice! They put their maps next to each other. I guess. Right,
0: right, right. So that was not not by design. That's just a little glitch, right? Not by design, no. But it, honestly, if
2: you if you're good at the game and you play it a lot, like I did, that's the main place where you use a <laughs> levitation spell. Incredible,
0: nice. So you ma- you mentioned your you had your your brother there and growing up in Virginia. What was your what was your childhood like?
2: Well, in the mines, it was um it was rough, but once we got to the beaches, no, it was fine. It was like a normal a suburban kid <laughs> childhood. You know, I don't. You know, I was I wasn't super popular at school, but I had friends, yeah. and we had moved cross country. Actually, I was born in California, oh, okay. and we moved to Virginia mm-hmm. when I was seven. So, was that I, for
0: your parents' work or something?
2: Yeah, it was for my dad's work. I mean, that was a big deal, but you know, kids are pretty flexible at that age. I made new friends, and yeah. I had fun with my friends and things like that. Yeah. So,
0: and what did your dad do? Was he was he an engineer?
2: No, he was a doctor.
0: Oh, okay, right. As in a medical doctor?
2: Yeah, he was an anesthesiologist.
0: Oh, right, okay. Ah. And so, but, but he was into mechanical engineering or robotics, is that, is that right? He was into mechanic cars. He repaired old cars, oh, basically, as a hobby. Uh, okay, right. Um, he was very
2: good with his hands, very good with mechanical stuff like that, and very um, determined, I guess. Uh, a lot of that stuff. When you're doing the mechanical things, they don't work for a long time, or they take a lot of just just working with your hands Correct. and stuff. And if you give up early, then you'll never finish. So he never gave up on stuff,
0: right? Much like video game making, so I hear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he'd buy like buy up old old sort of wrecks and and do them up and then sell them on or keep them or what was the deal?
2: Yeah, he was partial to MG cars, <laughs> uh, which were a kind of older sixties seventies MGs, uh, which were yeah relatively easy to fix up i mean in the scheme of things you know they didn't have a lot of complicated electronics or things like that and you know you could bang out the the dents and the bumpers and you could put some bondo on and, and sand it down and you could rebuild the engine in a small garage so yeah they're
0: sort of seen as good gateway sports cars aren't they mgs or at least in the in the uk there.
2: yeah they? right very zippy very small kind of like a little yeah they were a lot of fun once they're yeah, all fixed up nice
0: and um was your mum around
2: yeah, my mom was around. She was a nurse when we were growing up, uh, and then she eventually retired. But most of the, most of the growing up, she was also a part time nurse. Mm-hmm.
0: And so the you know you start to get interested, I guess, in in cars and in engineering. What what form did that take? Were you allowed to work on any of these projects?
2: Yeah, I was helping my dad um, a lot with that sort of thing, and it's really nice when you've got you know you have an old car and it's got a lot of problems. Uh, that can be fixed in very specific ways that sometimes need very specific tools. And so that's a lot of fun for a kid just to be using mm-hmm. you know, drill presses and, and vice grips and vices and air compressors and, and things like that. Just working on cars was a lot of nice.
0: fun. What, what sort of um, things were you allowed to do and what, what, what did you have to keep away from?
2: Uh, I think I could do pretty much everything. Nice. Uh, my dad was the kind of guy who wanted to help. He, w- he was teaching me stuff, but also he wanted you know me to be sandblasting stuff so that he could work on other yeah, stuff, other things. So.
0: And at what point does, it, does all of this um, lead you to think or oh, want to maybe be involved in robotics when I when I get older and, as a job?
2: Uh, I think the key was the my interest in magic when I was a kid. Right. Um, I felt like I could build cool things with small micro robots, basically that could do interesting, cool things like a magician might do. Basically, oh,
0: nice. Did you have anything in mind?
2: No, I don't think, nothing really specific, but it was enough that I felt like, okay, you, you know, you can make small mechanical things that maybe have a little bit of intelligence and can do cool stuff, mm-hmm. that's basically it.
0: And then, so you you head off to Virginia Tech, and am I right in thinking that you get a little disillusioned with, uh, with the course or with what you were hoping to achieve through it? Actually, before I'd gone, I had
2: started working on robots, just taking apart say so radio shack robots and looking at how they work and putting them back together and trying to do some r- random things with them by hooking them up to a commodore with a friend of mine oh cool um the commodore had a really nice port on the back that you could just turn plus five or or ground on these ports mm-hmm. uh, so it was really easy to do to hook up to a remote control or something like that
0: right and so you'd use the commodore 64 to control the robot move it around or whatever
2: right yeah and I mean, even at that point, I started to see the the problem basically w- with the real world uh, and r- real world sensors and communicating with a robot and getting the robot to sense its world and to react to it in interesting ways. You spend a lot of time dealing with that real world part of it. Yeah. So even if you have the perfect algorithm for navigating a room, your sensor doesn't work quite, quite right or doesn't trigger on this corner the way you, you need it to, or it triggers on this thing when it shouldn't, or your gears are not turning quite quite as far as you need them to, so, you know, dead reckoning is not going to work. You need some other sensor on the gear. Basically, just all these, like, mechanical problems with working with f- a physical object. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of, I had that sense when I went to college, and then college sort of confirmed it, that, uh, yeah. well, really, they didn't have a robotics program at college. It was just mechanical engineering. And, and so I I could specialize, I think, at some point, but it wasn't immediate. And still, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that I want to do it but I started taking computer classes for the mechanical engineering course I needed some computer engineering as well and that's when I sort of realized and I'd done some very minor programming stuff before going to college but in college I started to feel the contrast more of doing mechanical stuff and working with the actual physical world and just doing it all in software and I was basically lured away and, and realized that software
0: is a lot easier and can be a lot more fun. Things fit together properly in, in software in a way they don't in the real world, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, this seems like a good time, Lucas, to come to your, your second game, uh, which I believe was for the Mac. Can you tell us about uh, this one? It came out around the same time as Wizards and Warriors, in fact.
2: Yeah, it came out at the same time, but I didn't play it until a little later. This is uh, Dark Castle. The computer we had when, when I was growing up was a Mac Plus, which was honestly a weird computer in to have, at least in the in the, the circles that I was circulating. Um, so it was unusual, an unusual computer. And of my experience with games, you know, Atari 2600 and Nintendo, it had weird games too uh, because you had the <laughs> mouse, it was black and white, it was this tiny little screen. Um, and I, I saw Dark Castle on my cousin's computer uh, he had a Mac too um, a couple years before, and so when we finally got a Mac Plus for our, our home computer thing, this was for writing papers and things like that. Um, I made sure to get uh, Dark Castle for that. It's it's another one that I just loved it. I mean, I love the theme. It's it's funny. It uh, it looks beautiful. I think when I think about the the way the Mac Plus looked, the design, the black and white, the low resolution, the square pixels. Dark Castle to me is the basically the perfect realization of that style and everything about the game looks just gorgeous to me and um, I I say this a lot when I do interviews and things is I never once thought that it would be better with color and actually there is a color version of Dark Castle and to me it looks about a thousand times worse than the black and white version right yeah. yeah. So just visually, the game was was very striking to me, and I loved it. Um, and just a really good realization of that kind of style. The limitations of of the Mac Plus were just like it, it's like it wasn't a limitation anymore. It was it was exactly what the kind of game that uh, you wanted to have on the system. And it used the mouse too, which is which was cool. Something you didn't see in in other games.
0: Yeah, what, what kind of game was it for people who aren't familiar? What did you do in it? That's another thing is it
2: coming from Nintendo, it was a different kind of game. It wasn't, it was a platformer. I mean, you see your little guy running around, he jumps on platforms, but it was more like, mm. I think um, in Europe, you, this is the kind of standard sort of microcomputer platformer, which is a flip screen. Each screen is kind of different, a different challenge and has to be navigated in a special way. You move slowly, you take your jumps carefully, that sort of thing. That was all new to me for Dark Castle. Um, I was used to the sort of Mario thing where you're just hauling ass and jumping on heads Mm. and things like that.
0: Smooth scrolling. Yeah,
2: right. So this was, for me, um, different. You know, you you get popped on the screen and it looks gorgeous and you see moving platforms and you kind of got to, you see things, obstacles going on a pattern and back and forth. And you kind of have to take your time and and jump from here to there and throw rocks at this guy at this time, that sort of.
0: okay well, so you uh, you do start making these these mods for quake while you're while you're at virginia tech or, or just shortly after and end up at this company called real-time associates which, which was specializing i guess in um so-called serious games, which we don't have too much of these days. But but back at that time, they were quite a, quite an interesting, fertile area, weren't they? And you were making games like, for example, Remission, which was a sheet of design to encourage children to take their chemotherapy medication. Um, you know, wh- what made you take that job when you'd been working on, on mods and, I guess, more traditional video games?
2: Taking that job meant moving from Virginia to LA. So honestly, I was just glad to get a position out there, you know, um, in the industry. Um, but the expertise they were looking for also was pretty good. I, you know, coming from college, I had actually worked at, uh, I'd created a company with some friends after college called Ratloop and we'd made, we'd shipped a, a game or two. Um, and I had kind of struggled for a long time to build a resume, which didn't really work. I hadn't built a resume. So this was a company that was kind of looking for my, someone with my skills, but not necessarily my, you know, wouldn't have a, a string of games I could point to that I had done before um, and I really I mean I really like the the sort of goal of the project I was hired for remission to work on remission um, and to, to me that seemed like just a really good use of interactive media basically um, and I, at the time I didn't Ugh. even really understand the, what serious games were or that it was kind of a really a different sort of category of interactive media um, but I did like the idea that this game would, would be helping people.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a. Uh, I don't really like that t- term "serious games" because it implies that all other games can't be or something like that. And but anyway, I mean, it's I suppose a good definition is these are games that are, have got some social or practical mission underlying them. Just I mean, can you just explain how did this game remission work and in what ways was it designed to? Encourage children suffering from cancer to to engage in their medication or all of that.
2: Yeah, so a chemotherapy medication makes you sick when you take it. Uh, so there's a real cause and effect there. You take the medicine, you get sick. And it's kind of hard to explain to a kid that you need to be sick to get better, basically. You need to take this medication to, to, to kill the cancer in your body. Um, and so the game itself was organized as kind of a fantastic voyage-style thing where you you're this little nanobot that's flying through the blood vessels and the lungs and the heart and the different areas of the body, and you're shooting your chemo gun to kill the cancer cells. So the cancer cells are floating around. It's a third-person action adventure, basically. And the cutscenes and the themes and the you know the weapon names and everything, enemy names, all about are all about the specific. Ailments of these kids, which is cancers. So these are cancer cells. This is what they look like. This is based on what they actually look like, um, and we're going to shoot those cancer cells with the chemo gun. The game itself was designed uh, by you know a medical doctor, and it was part of a, a research paper about how can we help kids understand more about their their treatments and their diseases and things like that. So there was a a, a big. I don't know, research element to it too, where they needed to log a lot of things. And they would they would run different tests with kids and they would compare this game against a, r- a random other game, for example. So it's got to be fun for the kids, right. but it also has to have an element that they're learning some something about their treatments from the game. And I remember the results are very positive, actually. I think the, the other game they were playing was uh, one of the Indiana Jones Tomb Raider-like games. So they would have them, that was the control group, basically. They would play that, uh, and then they would have them kind of track their progress through chemotherapy and and have these different surveys at different times. And then they would play remission. Uh, other another group would play remission. And they would do the same thing. And I remember the results were very good. So that was encouraging.
0: Huh. I mean, it's such an interesting area and a little controversial because. Very often, for example, you know, one of the arguments made by proponents of video games is that video game violence doesn't have an effect on players and millions of people play games and, you know, don't go out and then commit acts of violence themselves. But if you make that argument, then you're also kind of saying, well, games can't have positive effects either. And it seems like this, this research was showing that there can be some yeah. Um, yeah. causation um, between behaviors and, and what you do on screen. Is that something that you you know went on to explore further at the studio and, and in, your, in your subsequent work? Well, at the
2: studio, I remember serious games is a tough, tough business. Number one, just the way the games are made. Right. It's yeah. very difficult to uh, explain that to somebody who's not making games, somebody who's not in the industry. So that was kind of always mm-hmm. a friction point with serious games. Is you have the client who wants something uh, and you're trying your best, but games are really kind of a mess until the very end. Uh, and so it's very hard to kind of balance the expectations with what, you've, what you what you can show them right now. So I think we did a couple of other serious things, but not, I don't even remember the details. It wasn't in the same sort of area.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. That whole movement just seems to have slightly fizzled out a bit, doesn't it? Or it's certainly not something I read about very much these days. Whereas, you know, around 2010, it was a, certainly a big, big topic, wasn't it? With a you know, conferences and all, all that kind of stuff
2: yeah yeah yeah
0: why do you think that why do you think that's happened well honestly
2: I would say that it probably is still there but uh, just don't hear about it as much I mean if you think about how much the video game market or industry has grown since then I can't imagine that those sort of things have dropped off a lot of the stuff was really practical things like um training applications for how to run a, an oil rig you know or what to do in an emergency of an oil rig like that stuff <laughs> you put that into piece of software and it's just a lot more effective than having to read a big manual or something like that. So probably it was, maybe the the, the kind of pendulum swung more towards training and less towards entertainment. And once it does that, then it kind of drops out of sight, kind of like, you know, gambling games and and pachinko games are really not on our radar at all if you're in the entertainment games industry. (laughs)
0: Uh, okay, Lucas. Let's come to your your third game. Then uh, tell us about this one. It's from 1991. What's the What's the game? This is
2: uh, Out of This World or Another World. They call it in Europe by uh, Eric Chahi.
0: yeah the great french designer. So yeah t- tell us where did you encounter this game?
2: Uh I don't even remember but I played it on DOS first which was I think a little time after it had come out. It came out on Amiga first I'm pretty sure and then I played it on DOS after that. And it was again like nothing I'd ever seen. That the intro for this game is just jaw dropping for me. It's like so it's almost wordless and it's so perfect. It's charges you up so much to play the game. It's like you it cannot help but be excited when the game starts. And that's kind of... Yeah, just just describe what happens in that. First off, the visual style is all kind of vector-based, flat shapes and things like that. And it's animated smoothly, which is also something you really didn't see that much back then. Um, a scientist drives up to his lab and starts an experiment, and the experiment goes wrong, and you're zapped to another world at that point. And you, when that zap happens is when you start to play. And it's... It's really powerful because you actually don't even know you're playing when it happens. Uh, it's very like smooth kind of transition. But when you're the right age and you see something like that, it's just so fucking awesome. You cannot help but be impressed by it. Yeah. And the game was full of things like that. One of the things I learned from this game is how... Well, I, I don't think... I mean, Maybe in retrospect I learned it, but there are so many memorable things that happen in that game constantly. It's like an unending series of memorable events in the game. Yeah. Um, there are some core mechanics to it, but there's just like your, every screen, every scene has something new and cool in it. And yeah, it really blew my mind at the time. And I, I couldn't believe it was one guy, first off, that did it. Um, and I couldn't believe that it's almost like one of a kind. There are not a lot of other... Uh, other games sort of imitated it, mm. but never really... They leave out big swaths of what was in out of this world, uh, in my opinion. And it's kind of like unmatched uh, for that
0: period. Yeah, it's got such a memorable aesthetic like you say and feel and yeah so it does i think in a way feel quite european as a, as a piece of games design, which sounds like a strange thing to say but uh it does have a it feels like it's coming from a slightly different tradition right
2: yeah it's janky as hell i think that's what you're trying to say it's very janky <laughs> yes. and it's like there's a lot of um things that are frustrating about it 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 has that sort of cinematic platformer element where you got to do the right thing at the right time or you die over and over again mm. but for me that was always very forgivable because the effect the overall effect of the whole game is just so cool They're like if you watch it you should watch a video of that game and see the crazy shit he was doing in there like like emptying reservoirs into caverns and having the water flow everywhere like you just it was totally unseen unheard of stuff when you're dealing with normal console stuff at the time which would have been you know tile maps and sprites and raster effects and shit like that like it was just yeah, it just it so far beyond anything I'd seen before.
0: Incredible stuff. Yeah. So, so you leave uh, you leave the company, uh, Real Time Associates, and you go and join the very famous studio Naughty Dog, where you start working on one of their most famous series, uh, the Uncharted games. How much did you know about what Uncharted was going to be when you when you accepted the job?
2: Uh, almost nothing. Uh, they had released one teaser trailer of it it looked like kind of an indiana jones in the jungle sort of thing uh, at the time which i thought looked awesome it's great Loved, i would love to work on it and that's basically what happened
0: yeah so you knew you were going to work on uncharted
2: yeah i, would, I mean i knew they were a one game studio at the time yeah yeah
0: and it's i mean i suppose that that get of game is really almost the complete opposite of what you've been doing before you know what were, your, what were your responsibilities you know, on this very cinematic project? Well, yeah,
2: that's kind of why I got the job is because I wasn't doing anything directly on the game. I was one step removed working on the tools. I, honestly, I think I got that job because I wanted to work on the tools and almost nobody at the company wanted to work on tools. <laughs> right. The tools guy they had there um, who was doing the GUI tools, the visual tools, was part-time or contract or something. He wasn't even full-time there. Oh, right, okay. So, yeah, the kind of... At the time that sort of interest in tools was just not common at all. People wanted to make games. They wanted to work on gameplay. Yeah. Programmers spent their time dreaming of, you know, having controlling character states and things like that, I guess. Um, but I was all about doing windows and buttons and, and crap like that. So I, I was right in there. That was exactly what I wanted to be doing. So
0: were you were you doing the user interface? Was that the main part of your responsibility?
2: The big thing I worked on there was this uh, tool called Charter, which was for the, the designers to basically put together the meshes for the level and drop in where the characters would be, where the enemies would be, and where the weapon pickups would be, and where mm-hmm. um, the patrol routes would be, and things like that. Um, so it was a 3D tool, editor, editing tool, basically, um, simplified to a certain level.
0: How much were the designers saying to you, oh, look, we, we want to be able to do this, and then you have to go away and code it? Was that the sort of relationship?
2: Sort of. I the When I got there, when I started, they were the tool they were using was built into the game. So they would have a PS three controller, and they would be moving it around to move the camera and place items in the world, <clears throat> and then they would press a button; and it would save it to their computer or something across the network, and they could load it up again on the game itself. Um, and you know, if you know anything about PS three at the time, there was no memory and no t- no cycles to spare for the like the tool like that being built into the game, so it needed to come out immediately. Um and I decided uh, it for some reason they gave me the authority to make this call, but I decided it's going to be an application written in .NET on a Windows machine instead, and it's going to save to a format that gets into the build system that way. Right, I see. And uh, for a long time, I actually maintained this sort of um, link to the game so that they could sort of have a little bit of what they had before. So if you fire up the game and load the level, and then in the editor you could control the camera and the level in the game or there was some some weird concession there that eventually got torn out because it was sort of my very different solution to the problem of building levels it was my bridge to hold on there's a metaphor here Um, my hill to die on there we go right (laughs) Um, which means that designers wanted stuff but they didn't really know exactly what they wanted because they didn't know exactly what I was building so my brilliant idea was I'll just build it and then give it to them and they'll like it (laughs) Um, and that worked to a certain extent um, but I I come from the Macintosh or the Apple field of software design, which is that it's better to be limited than to have every possible feature that you could ever want. Right. And so I, a lot of the time I was turning down requests for different features uh, in the tools because I thought, well, I'm one guy. I need to maintain this tool and that tool and the other tool, and it's really going to spiral out of control if we start adding all this stuff to right, it. Right. 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 Uh, and furthermore, you know, if I start, if everybody gets their own little pet feature in there, then it's kind of like you're using all using different tools and it, i think it's better if we all use kind of the same processes and the same uh general pipeline
0: oh, that's so interesting but i mean you know it's right decision obviously but not the kind of decision that always makes you popular among the the level designers and things were there any uh any points of tension there
2: i think one or two but uh i was still very responsive to things you know if they want a lot of times and this happened with this happens with game feedback too people Recognize a problem in the game. There's something they don't like about the game or a tool, and they come and they explain the problem. You know, which is great, and then they give you the solution to the problem. And that part, you know, okay, awesome, love your idea. I'm gonna, I'll solve your problem, but not like that kind of thing. And so I would, I spent a lot of, I mean, I, I really, I felt like at the time I took my job at Naughty Dog, I knew about design, maybe not a lot, but enough. I knew about art, uh, and I knew about programming, uh, and I knew about sound too. So I had these like this kind of toe dips in a lot of these disciplines enough to know generally, or at least to think I knew generally what what could help these designers, what could help the artists, what could help the sound Mm -hmm. uh, designers and things like that. And so I wasn't just a programmer engineer um, approaching this as a programming problem. I was kind of thinking from the design side, what really do these guys need? Do they need a third dimension on all their placements or can i just snap it to the ground for example and save everybody a ton of trouble from having to navigate in in full 3d right um so it was like lots of little decisions like that which you know if if it didn't work for the designers i would have changed it but luckily most of it worked pretty well uh, and uh, ended up um not needing a lot of changes
0: uh, it strikes me lucas you're such an interesting (laughs) character in terms of your skills because you're here working on this hollywood blockbuster cinematic game but you're really in the weeds with the technical stuff And yet, all the games you make later on—they're so—they're almost literary in in the sense that you—you know—they're all about the the themes and the ideas behind them. You know, where do you get all of this? These these various skills from these various interests. There's not many. I would maybe I'm talking stereotypes here, but but perhaps there's not many programmers and engineers that also can do subtext and novelistic techniques as well. Where's where does that come from?
2: Yeah, where does that come from? Uh, Good question. I I think. The best way to talk about this is to flip it the other way around. And basically, I started out with an interest in engineering, art, uh, music, sound, and design. Those are the things I kind of liked to do when I was a kid, before I ever started making games. And if you think about where I can bring all that crap together, uh, games are basically the best chance to bring it all together.
0: Yeah, the melting pot. It's just like
2: everything that I like is, is in games. If I just started doing movies or writing books... One element of that would have been missing. So, uh, games are just kind of the perfect place for me for me to land.
0: Yeah, yeah, incredible. Right, let's come to your your fourth game. Are we on the fourth one? Yeah, we are. Yeah. So this is from uh, from 1998. Tell us about this game.
2: This is Thief by Looking Glass. So this one, I had already been working in Quake for a couple years. I think our studio, uh, Ratloop, had made a game or was working in the middle of working on a game or we were doing some mods for Quake. I can't remember exactly the timing, but I remember being very deep in Quake and thinking that Quake was basically the best thing ever made. It's not on this list, but it's still pretty good. And then playing Thief, and it was also, Thief was like such a, blast of fresh air compared to my experiences with Quake. Uh, Quake is, looks amazing, but it's, it's gameplay-wise, you just run around shooting things the whole game. That's it. Thief was something very different. It, first off, it looked different. It looked weird. It was like... It was crappy in, in really strange ways that I that appealed to me, basically. Um, visually. It had these like really low-resolution characters, uh, but they moved with motion capture. They were all motion captured, so it looked really cool to me. And the, de- the textures were kind of... They looked like scan textures, whereas Quake was always hand-drawn. Um, but, again, looked amazing, <clears throat> uh, in my opinion. On the, on this list, anyways, Thief is the first game where I was playing it as... Um, or noticing things about it as a game developer. Because I'd been making games at that time, by that time. And the, Thief is a very systems-based game. You spend... You, basically, you, you're a thief. Um, and you're stealing trinkets from mansions and castles and things and the systems are very simple you know you can sneak and there's a light gem so you can see where in the shadows or not and there are guards that are on patrols and have very simple AI and there's a pretty in-depth sound system that so the guards can respond to sounds you make and you can hear sounds in different ways um, and that kind of systems based thing was very I don't know if it was new to me but at least coming from quake it, it seemed like it had so much potential. And they really used it they utilized it perfectly in that game because they have these systems and they sort of build a contract with the player at the beginning that okay, you're gonna be stealing small stuff you're, you're a cat burglar you're gonna be slipping into places, stealing trinkets and then slipping out yeah. and they build a whole narrative interesting narrative about those specific mechanics and those specific systems that they're they're having the player do the whole game. And so it's not like a yeah. a cutscene that you know Mario is saving the princess. Which is his main goal, but he's jumping on mushrooms heads to to do it. It there was a there was a real like synergy between the story and the mechanics in Thief that I that I hadn't seen before
0: or quite understood. I guess. Yeah, it's very popular with um, well with level designers and and uh, a lot of indie game designers like it very much, don't they? So
2: yeah, another thing I really liked is that you can play non lethally. It's kind of always been a trip for me that games are first and foremost about killing things. And in Thief, you can just knock people out and then hide the body. And so that, that yes, it's better actually because you're trying to hide a body. It, to me, the, the, it seems so perfect that I'm going to knock him out. He's not dead. So my, you know, my conscience is is all set over here. Um, but there's an extra cost to that that I now need to hide him yes. in, so that somebody else can't find him.
0: Yes, yeah. Me- uh, Metal Gear Solid, which I think came out the same year. Had the same thing where you could use a tranquilizer gun instead, which, uh, like you say, you you feel sort of right. Yeah. You've got the moral superiority of using it, but also the the hassle of having to deal with uh, the the you know yeah. guards reviving and things like that after a certain amount of time. So yeah, really interesting. So you um yeah you work on Uncharted one and Uncharted two, and then you strike off on your own. You've been making some experimental. Dates with your with your wife at the time and then inspiration strikes for, for Papers, Please, this, which goes on to become a phenomenon. Do you remember which particular immigration control you were traveling through when, uh, when you had the idea for the game?
2: Um, no, I don't think, I mean, I didn't go through that many, but it was kind of a, co- a collection or a kind of cumulative effect of seeing how the, each one was a little different mm. uh, that sort of did it for me. Uh, and also, th- there was actually one moment, um, and it wasn't immigration, it was customs, which is a step after immigration, usually at the at the airport. Uh, and I'd been in Japan for a while, and I was coming back to the U.S. to visit somebody or something. Uh, and the customs agent, when he checked my thing uh, briefly, because uh, they never check it thoroughly, he just said, welcome home. And at that time, I considered my home to be Japan, because I'd lived there for a while. But just kind of hearing that and feeling that sort of welcomeness had an effect on me, because I know... You know, immigration is all about usually going somewhere that you're not welcome. And kind of feeling that welcome, this sort of made the whole situation, I don't know, noteworthy for me that I was thinking about it more after that. Right.
0: You choose to set the game in this fictional country in the Eastern Bloc. I suppose it's got a Soviet feel, although I don't think that's ever made it explicit. What made you decide to to set it there rather than, you know, like a U.S. immigration control or something? Uh,
2: I think just the flexibility that I could do a lot more if it's fictional. I mean, that's one thing. And then, you know, when you're talking about bureaucracies, you kind of want a communist sort of setting. And so that's why it can't be America, I guess. I mean, it probably could have been America, but just wasn't as interesting for me uh, or it wasn't as flexible for what I wanted. And I grew up in the 80s, so this kind of Soviet-style red scare thing was all over the place in media totally inaccurate i'm sure but still it was something that was like pretty easy to draw on as far as uh inspiration
0: yeah because it's in the music isn't it and the whole aesthetic of the game is yeah, yeah so it draws from that tradition doesn't it so ha- how soon after you put the game out did you realize that your life had changed
2: uh i got some some sense when i released one of the earlier betas on Greenlight. I think it was Steam had a system before you could publish on there. You needed a Greenlight. You needed people to vote on your game and say that they would buy it if it was on Steam. Uh, and it had a really good response on Greenlight. And it was almost entirely due to YouTube. People would play it on YouTube and then tell their people to, tell their viewers to go vote for it on Greenlight or something like that. Um, and that's when I started to realize, uh, okay, maybe this, is, maybe I've got something good here. And I'd originally planned to finish it in six months. I kind of had this projection of when it's going to finish. And once it got a really good response, I thought I better spend some more time on this. So I gave it an extra three months on there. Which you know, thinking back now is almost a fucking joke because it takes me four years to do anything to get out of the bed.
0: What did you? What did you put that time towards that that extra three months? I think I, I added a few more
2: mechanics. I cut a bunch of stuff, and I added more days to the game. Just make it
0: longer kind of thing so, so you then move from this beta version to the full version was how long did that take i can't quite remember
2: uh, i think it was about six months from from beta to full version something like that
0: right and and had the game already you know the beta already been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times by that point
2: yeah yeah it was already pretty popular uh and the beta is basically the first eight days of the game and that's kind of how i make games is i from the beginning i try to get the initial experience working so that in my head i can project it out the full game maybe it's not good yeah there's no guarantee that from here on it'll be any good but at least up to here it's good and you want more kind of thing yeah
0: that's a, that's a great uh great technique i think definitely and then you know to, i'm not sure how many copies it sold but i imagine it's in excess of two million um by this point sometimes that level of success can you know which, which i suppose is sufficient in theory to allow a person to retire or whatever and not have to work again but th- th- that can be the enemy of creativity right because it becomes a creative block because you you don't have the same motivations or whatever and also there's perhaps risk of uh, you know failure with a with a follow-up of it not being as successful all sorts of things that can go on to stifle uh to stifle a creative person H- how did you maintain your appetite to work after papers please
2: well i just kept working i think I mean, I made Papers, Please sort of for myself. It's a weird game that you couldn't sell to a publisher. So I was thinking, okay, I'm going to make this and sell it and hope other people are like me then they like it too. And so that ended up working. Oh, there were <sighs> other people like me and they did like the game that, that I had made. Um, and so I I was really worried about following that up for a long time. I mean, financially it was great because that meant I could I could at least spend my time on trying to make another game. that has sort of always been my goal. And it's the typical indie thing where, you know, you just want, I just want to make games. So if, if I can get the financial stability to make games, then I'm happy. And that's where I was. And so I was, you know, when I had, when I came up with Oberdin, I thought this is great. Uh, I think this can work, but it took me a really long time to make it. And part of that was because I was worried about you know my sophomore effort and follow up and expectations for what I was making, all based on papers, please.
0: Yeah, how did you how did you get around those eventually?
2: Right, I didn't answer the actual question. Well, uh, I I mean I didn't get around it because it took me a really long time. I mean I, I I guess I finished the game. That was the main thing, but it took me a long time, and I was very sick of the game. Yeah, uh, uh, Oberdin in the end, but I just kept kind of going on it, and this is sort of a lesson that I learned, I don't know, maybe slowly, but at least I have now, is that you just keep working on on it. And no matter how bad things look, and things look really bad all the time on games, games are, I mentioned this earlier, but games are a total fucking mess until the last month, basically. And it's always the way it is. And things, you know, you can finish a feature that just is so great, and is so awesome, and you love it. And then that honeymoon for that is almost nothing, because you realize, well, actually this doesn't solve all the problems that I had and, and this is not enough. I mean, it's cool. It's great that you can do this in the game now and it's great. I can do a lot of cool stuff with it, but it's not enough. I need more. Um, and so that was kind of a constant thing on Oberdin where ha- coming up, sort of realizing there's a problem with the design or something, solving it and then kind of being happy for a microsecond, enough to write a blog post about it and then realizing, that, well, that's not enough. I have to keep pounding away. There's, there's something else that's missing here. Um, and so just kind of keep doing that and at a certain point you just that's just how it is you kind of get into the rhythm of of that and you realize that you just got to keep powering through on it and eventually it'll all be done and all be over if you just keep going that's one of the things that being multidisciplinary helps with is because you can i can switch gears pretty easily and say like okay I don't know how to solve this design problem or I thought I did and I wasted a bunch of time on something that doesn't work. So I'm just going to put away the design stuff and just draw some pretty pictures for a little while and that's going to take my mind off it and sort of recharge my design batteries.
0: That's so interesting. I mean, it's exactly the same in, in writing books, I think, as long the the key is just keep moving yeah. a little bit each day and then it it, accu- it accumulates, like you say, over time if you can do that. it's
2: Yeah, it can be really painful and it's, it's the kind of thing where... It, even if you're, even if everything you're doing is a total waste, like you're just drawing the stupidest pictures that don't work, and the textures are not going to work at all, and this code you're writing, you're going to rip it all out later. Just that sort of momentum is worth keeping. Basically, just keep going.
0: Yeah, you've got to get some paint on the canvas, don't you, before you can go back and fix it. So yeah. Um, okay, Lucas. Let's come to your your fifth and and your final game. Uh, tell us about this one from 2010. Okay. Yeah. This is all,
2: these are all chronological, but I think. Um, of the five, this is probably the most important uh, for me. Um, in my career, uh, this is digital, a love story by Christine Love. This is uh, kind of a very small game, freeware game even. She released it for free, I think, right away when she made it. And it's, uh, you play, you basically have a, you look at a desktop on a computer, old computer, almost 8-bit style computer, and you dial into BBSs and you get messages and you send messages. And um, it's, I think it's classified as a visual novel. Although I, I've played visual novels before and they're not nothing like this game. Uh, this game has actual like clicking on things and has a certain level of mechanics to it. Yeah, this game was extremely influential um, for me just in the whole sense of what interactive media is um, first off it's very minimal. it's probably the in my mind the best the perfect minimal game. Uh, you click on a few things there's a text you read, but there's there's one screen you're looking at the whole time. The really like it has a very sparse interface. Uh, the actions that you're doing are very kind of minimal and rote. But it has a, a an evolving story as you play it, and the pacing is really good. I, I don't know. I can't say enough good things about this game, and the fact that it's very minimal and very small also I think is was very effective for me. That, that I could see clearly this was made by one person, but it was so good uh, to me it, it, that like you can see you can see if you play this game digital, you can see it in a lot of my games after that point. You can see it in Papers, Please, and Republic of Times, and and these. Even Oberden, I think you can see kind of the effects of this game. Um, She builds such an interesting narrative through such a limited interface. And this is the game that kind of really showed me how much you can put in the player's head. How much you can have the game exist not on the screen and not in the words, but in in the player's mind. And that's kind of an effect that I leverage in everything I do. I try to think about what can I how can I seed the player's imagination? I'm not going to spell it all out. I'm not going to show them a wild cut scene of this cool shit happening. I'm going to suggest that this cool stuff is happening in a way that what they imagine is going to be better than anything I could ever show. And I mean, that's kind of the, the crux of overdin that you hear this radio play, but you don't see anything. You hear it. And so y- your mind has to picture it. And whatever your mind pictures, I guarantee is better than what I could animate. So that kind of idea and influence comes from from christine's game mm.
0: that's so interesting i I was listening actually to a screenwriter chat the other day and they were saying that it's actually when you're doing a scene with a character on the phone it's always much more effective to only hear the character side of the conversation oh, yeah, yeah because viewers like to fill in the other half they like to do that little bit of work and i think that's really true you know of this game and if you yeah
2: i mean it's exactly true of this game because you're you're on this bbs and you're you're reading messages from from different characters on the bbs and you can send messages to them and they will respond to you the message that you send to them is never shown you only see the the subject header i think (laughs) so you see the re and then you know something you so you don't actually know your side of the conversation with these characters that they're responding to it's just brilliant because at first it's weird you're like you're kind of looking for your side Your part of the email message or whatever but it's not there and then you realize it doesn't need to be there it, it's so to, to me it was it's so cool that that moment when you realize mm-hmm. that they're responding to oh, it almost feels like you not the game it feels like it's a much more personal thing um when, once she, she did that yeah
0: yeah super super interesting and i guess that's perhaps where this idea of it being called a visual novel i'm not sure if papers please has ever been called that before but you know that idea because these are novelist techniques right whereby you're not showing everything so many video games show everything because they just think you have to but uh you know as as novelists know you want to hold stuff back and yeah. uh, allowing a, a reader or a viewer or a player to fill in those blanks often you know invests them much more deeply in the fiction, does not it yeah. Right, let's look at your, your console then, Lucas. So we've got Wizards and Warriors, Dark Castle, Out of This World slash Another World, Thief, and then Digital, A Love Story. How are you feeling about that?
2: Yeah, sounds good. If I had to pick five, I'd probably pick those five. <laughs> if I was on a podcast or something, and I had to run through a, a five five games. I think I'd pick those.
0: Good, oh good. We haven't changed your mind having to talk about them, so that's uh, that's a relief. And then, um, so yeah, we need a we need a name for your console, something to market to the world. You're you're very good at giving names to things. What would you like to name this? Right, that's that was sort of
2: the pressure. This is the hardest part of the podcast challenge, to be honest with you. <laughs> I spent a long time trying to figure this out because only one of these games is on console. That's the first problem. Uh, they're all very different. One of them is black and white. A few of them require a mouse. Uh, some of them require a controller. Yep.
0: It's all doable. We can do all of this. Yeah.
2: Well, um, the whole thing is your idea. So I thought, why don't we just call it the parking station?
0: Ah, oh, thank you, Lucas. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, yeah, you've got workstation, playstation, and I wonder where on the continuum the parking station is. Work or play. But anyway.
2: <laughs> all the way. Fucking okay, blasting through the the bar on that. Oh, yeah.
0: cool. All right. Well, just before I let you go, Lucas, so I read an interview with you um, earlier this week where you you were talking about Oberdin and you've alluded to it in this chat as well. How the game's scope just sort of grew and grew until until you you felt it was starting to squeeze out some other important aspects of your life, which I think lots of creative people can probably can probably relate to that to that feeling you know how how since then, have you maintained boundaries, I suppose if that's the work so that your work doesn't take over your life? Is it possible
2: uh, yeah, I guess you're assuming it hasn't taken over my life my work <laughs> okay we'll we'll start with that, I guess yeah, we can lay that down um i well with Oberdin, there was a lot of stress and pressure from the follow up for papers, please. Once I shipped Oberdin and it people liked i guess the pressure kind of released a bit. <laughs> Uh, So there was less, less pressure on me to produce basically after that. So I, I mean, I've really Mm -hmm. just become way less productive since the way that I'm dealing with that, Um, which has its own problems. You know, I'm, I'm generally kind of want to stay productive, but with the pandemic the last few years and then the growing kids and things like that, I've basically just said, well, I'll just, I'll try to maintain the two games that I have, which is a lot of work on its own. And I'll try to maybe start something small and i fucked that up too cuz you know the, the small thing i started is also ballooned out of out of proportion but that's at least what i'm trying to do is yeah. just kind of take it easy and and yeah not be too worried about uh, producing something right away i think you know maybe when my kids get a little older i can sort of go back to staying up all night working on games and things like that but for now i try to balance it just a little more in that sense and because I had the success of Paper Please and Overdine, you know I'm mentally a little more able to handle that kind of relaxation.
0: Yeah, right. Do you keep quite strict hours? No,
2: no. Well, if I want to get up with the kids, I got to be up early, and then it's really hard for me to go to bed at a normal time. So I'm all over the place, basically. Yeah, right, right.
0: And then can you can you talk about uh, your 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 next project at all? It's, it's it's a version of it is out on your website, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's called Mars After Midnight, and it's for the play date which is a small yellow console with a crank on it uh, for the interface um, as an input mechanism. And I it's black and white, which is the first thing that drew me to it. The console itself is just black and white pixels. Um, and then the crank kind of is sort of like, a, for me, it was kind of like the the Wii moment when, you, as a game designer, you see the Wii controller for the first time, you just kind of get these ideas. When I saw the crank, I thought, okay, I got a few ideas for that. And, you know, I thought, okay, it'll be a small project because it's a small device, real simple um but that's the kind of thing where
0: it's taken me a lot longer than than i expected yeah yeah and then any plans for what's on the other side of that
2: not really uh i i think i need to figure out a way to incorporate ai maybe in my development working as a solo developer i'm always kind of looking for efficiencies uh in the way i design or the way i program or something somewhere in the tools i make um and i feel like if i don't maybe start using AI, ai then i'll I'll regret it, basically. But at the same time, I don't. Right now, I don't know how I could use it. Just feel like okay, I better try, try to do something with it.
0: Yeah, which particular area do you think you could do use some AI assistance with?
2: Yeah, I don't, man. I don't know. Right, like that's the thing. I maybe programming. I don't. Yeah, it's hard to say. Maybe I feel like if I did anything with AI, I would want the AI. I would want that to be an element of it. I wouldn't be trying to just get textures out of it. I would want somehow the AI to be. Incorporated the fact that it's made from AI need, would need to be important.
0: Um, oh, cool. Yeah. And yeah.
2: that I, yeah, haven't solved that at all. I haven't even thought about it that much. Yeah. I, you know, I really thought VR was going to be the thing that changed it for all of us, but turns out it was AI. So, yeah, yeah.
0: I can hear all the listeners bring, breathing a sigh of relief there because uh, uh, you were at, at risk of some new stories there. Lucas Pope to use AI in his next game, but the fact that it's going to be part of the narrative perhaps is, uh, uh, I think people will really enjoy that. You could do some super interesting yeah. stuff, couldn't you? Well,
2: and I'm sure you will. Good. Yeah, no promises.
0: Well, thanks, Lucas. It's been amazing to talk to you. And uh, yeah, all the best with, with everything as you as you continue your journey. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. There we have it. Lucas Pope, everyone. I am so grateful to Lucas for making the time to talk to me. From that conversation, you probably caught that he is a very busy individual. We're all busy, but uh, Lucas has a lot of um, things vying for his attention. So, yeah, it took a while to set that up, but I'm very glad that we were able to because uh, what a fascinating video game designer, developer. He is the full package, isn't he? So, you know, really an exceptional programmer. He also does creates the art, he also creates the music, the sound effects, and of course all of the writing and conceptual, um, conceptual art thinking, I guess you could call it, that goes into his games that makes them such a powerful expression of all that video games can be. If you've not played Lucas's games, of course you've played Lucas's games, but if you haven't, start with papers please you can just play it on your phone or on your ipad i think there's like an ios version i'm sure there's an android version um but it's also available on windows and mac and various other systems as well from there you should absolutely play return of the obra din really one of the best video games from the past few years i think that is indisputable it's been picked a couple of times on my perfect console before of course uh, quite rightly, Pierre Novelli earlier this month, in fact, picked Return of the Oberatin. It's a spectacular game, honestly, and with such a unique, memorable aesthetic as well. This sort of black and white produced with, you know, tiny little black dots. You can really like see where some of that influence has come from in his choices that he made in this conversation as well. Those old Mac games. If you go and look at those, and then you can just trace a direct line from that work through to Return of the Obra Dinn. Um, and then, of course, yeah, Lucas is working on Mars After Midnight for the playdate. Uh, the playdate, if you don't know, is sort of a it's um, a toy made by Panic. I think it's made by. It's quite a unique looking device, a little bit like a Game Boy, but with a crank that you. Uh, you literally crank one way or the other to, you know, that can be used as a control mechanism in the game. So it's quite a unique, interesting little system there with some fascinating games on it as well. I believe previous guest of the podcast, Jörg tell has also made a game for the play date. So, yeah, I want to look out for there. And of course, how exciting to hear Lucas talking about the areas that he's interested in for his next game that he is eager to explore the potential of artificial intelligence not only to help streamline the streamline the process but also as a narrative um device as well for whatever he makes and uh i'm sure he's going to crack that uh, particular nut and find the find the way to to the good stuff as he does time and time again um although of course no pressure on you lucas <laughs> You know, he talks eloquently there about feeling the uh, pressure of a sophomore effort after such a tremendous success. As peepers please, you know, lots of people who have successful first projects often feel that, don't they? And it can be quite um, arresting. He's got past that with the return of the Obra and his subsequent projects. So hopefully, hopefully he will not feel too trepidatious heading into whatever project it is next. Anyhow, thank you, Lucas. I've met Lucas a couple of times over the years, once in Tokyo a few years ago, pre-pandemic. Uh, but I haven't seen him uh, in person for a long time. So it was nice to yeah catch up on the Zoom and to uh, to have, have an hour talking to him. What a treat. What a privilege. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation and uh, enjoyed eavesdropping in on uh, all that back and forth. Right. uh yeah, if you want to see which guests are coming up in future weeks, then hop along to www.patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole. Uh, become a supporter. Thank you to those of you who are supporters of the podcast. It means a lot. It helps make it sustainable and helps make me uh, it just, you know, it's something I want to put out into the world. It's something I want to exist in the world. But, um, you know, having a little bit of uh, financial backing to pay, uh, some way towards the time and effort that goes into it is really helpful so thank you to those who've done that if you would like me to keep making these then maybe consider doing that it's not very much four pounds fifty a month i think uh, if you're in the uk and uh, five dollars if you're in the us or elsewhere whatever your local currency is and you get a few benefits for that as well as a chance to join the community so head along to patreon.com forward slash my perfect console hear what all of that is about um on Instagram on uh, Twitter as well although you know feel increasingly conflicted about in any way contributing to uh, X.com as is, it's now called so you know not sure how long I'm, I will personally be on there and the podcast will but we're we're there for now anyway we'll see what happens i guess um uh but yeah it's still a good way to just get some information if you're not on the Patreon uh, so yeah what else next week, next week's guest. I've started, you know, sort of talking about who next week's guest is going to be on here. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. You can email me to let me know, myperfectconsole at gmail.com. I think it's quite nice to give a heads up to those of you who make it this far into the podcast. A little bonus for you to hear who's coming up next. So next week, we've got uh, Meghna Jayanth, who is a narrative designer and writer for video games. She wrote the incredible 80 Days based on the Jules Verne novel Around the World in 80 Days. You may remember if you're a regular listener, Stella Wisdom, uh, curator for the British Library, picked 80 Days uh, for one of their choices, and um, the game has been displayed at the British Museum, uh, but sorry, the British Library. Did I say the museum? At the British Library, as part of their current exhibition that's going on there about digital preservation. Anyway, Magna has is a she's a smart cookie and has you know written some fantastic games not only indie stuff such as 80 Days and Sun and the Sea she also has worked on this Horizon Zero Dawn the blockbuster made by Sony and she's got a new game about to come out imminently that she's contributed to Thirsty Suitors I think that's out in a couple of weeks so yeah seems like a good time to speak to Meghna and Anna was very grateful to have the chance to do that so yeah you can tune in next week to hear all of her all of her thoughts and her five game picks, which are very good. And her, you can also listen to her fantastic insights into not only game design, but also narrative design and writing for games. So, yeah, be back next week with Meghna. Tune in and you can listen to her discuss her five games. And we'll add one more perfect console to the big old pile of perfect consoles that we are amassing until then